Well, these next two Wednesdays, or today and next week, is uh, just a little preparation of what we're doing for the meetings. And could I ask uh, somebody to get me a water, please? I forgot to get one. And um, so that's really what we're going to be praying about. We're going to be praying about the meetings that are coming up because we want to see God do something. We want it to be a time that is uh, special where God is doing something in our lives, where we are allowing Him to do something and looking for that. Thank you. Pastor Jeff, well, the Lord gave Pastor Jeff, uh, when the church was started, I take it, is uh, uh, a verse out of Luke chapter 4, verse 18, that is to be the, uh, the verse for the church of what we're really looking for, what we're really wanting. And that's actually what we're going to be preaching out of for uh, the four meetings that we're having. We're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And, um, and Luke chapter 4, verse 18 is uh, a prophecy that comes out of Isaiah 61. And in Luke it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news of the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this took place when Jesus went into the synagogue in his little village of Nazareth where he was raised and he went up there and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. And how the synagogues work is uh, they have a cycle that they go through of what they read. And so the interesting thing is Jesus came at the day, at the time, when they were looking at the scroll of Isaiah at this particular spot. And so it's astounding how God orchestrates things when we don't even understand it. So he reads this, and then he sits down, and that was the posture for teaching, okay? So it wasn't that he was sitting down because he was done. That was the posture for teaching. He sat down, and he said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And I have to imagine everybody in that synagogue had their mouths gaping open astonishment, going, what does this mean? You know, what is he saying? And if you continue reading the story, they were not happy with him, okay? They wanted to kill him uh, for that. But uh, I want to go to Isaiah 61, and I want to look at the original. And um, what we have to see when the original is given, when, that is, when that's done, um, and the New Testament, they quote a portion of it, uh, they didn't quote the whole thing just because it was uh, too big and too expensive to write and to do all that there so they would abbreviate things. That's why sometimes they have just a sentence from a prophecy. But when they quote the prophecy, they are quoting everything that's involved in that prophecy. And so, like I said, is in those four meetings, we're going to be looking at, uh, at verses 1 and 2, which would be in Isaiah uh, 61, but is in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And uh, let me just read the whole thing there, and then we're going to look at verse 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so this is what God was going to do through Messiah. And actually, the, this prophecy has two fulfillments. The first fulfillment, the initial fulfillment, is Jesus. Okay, He was the initial fulfillment, but this was to be fulfilled in the life of the church. So it is to be fulfilled in our lives. We are now to be a people that have the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord resting upon us with the power to be able to do what is spoken of in these two verses. 
Okay, that's what God's will is for the church. Not just a church, but the church, the true church. He wants the spirit of the sovereign Lord to rest upon them so that power flows through them for the signs and wonders and the deliverance of people and their salvation and for all the wonderful things that he speaks of there that we'll be addressing as time goes on uh, in the coming messages. But what I want to do is we're in those, in those messages that's coming up in the, in the series, we're not going to be looking at, at verses 3 and 4. And so tonight we're going to look at 3 and next week we're going to look at 4 because those two verses deal with two different things. They are still looking at verses 1 and 2 about the power of God being made manifest and the signs following that touches the needs of the people. But verse 3 is about the church and verse 4 is about the lost. And so really what I want to do this evening is I, when we go into a time of prayer, I want to look at this time as a time of refreshing, that we are coming as saints to meet with God, to be in His presence, and we come in a place of hungering and thirsting and desiring in expectation. Now you know what happens if you don't come in expectation? You get what you came with. Okay, you get nothing, right? I mean, you come in unbelief, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get nothing. If you come with fear and all those other things, you're not going to put yourself in the place that God can do the work. We must come in faith. We must come believing. We must believe the promises of God. And guess what? As we try to believe the promises of God, we're going to have the enemy of our soul trying to, uh, to stop us, hinder us, to make us not believe those promises. So we will have doubt and fear and anxiety and all the things that were even brought out in some of the worship that's going to come against us. It's going to be the reality of what we're going to face. So we press through. As a body, we press through. Because as we're going to look at what God wants to do in the church, is He wants to do a refreshing, an awakening, <clears throat> a stirring in the church, so that He can do something else through the church, which then is to reach a perishing world. And He can't reach a perishing world through the church if the church is sick, if the church is downcast, if it's in unbelief and doubt and fear and all those other things. So before God can save the world, He has to either do one of two things. He has to save the church if it's not saved or awaken the church if they are saved and falling asleep. So He has to deal with the church first to ready the church for the saving of the lost. And so that's what we're really going to look at, that that he's going to do this. Now verse 3 says, and provide for those who grieve in Zion. Okay, what is that? For those who grieve in Zion, who's that speaking to? It would be speaking to those who are believers, those who are in faith in Christ, okay? Of course, this is Old Testament, so they're referring to it as Zion, but the idea is that it's relating to those that are godly or in right fellowship with God. To do what? He says, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. So, when you look at this, the promises that are here in this verse of what God's going to do is for those who grieve. Alright, it's for those who grieve, but we've got to understand the grieving. We've got to understand what that's all about, and that's actually verse 4. But the grieving is grieving over the sin of Israel, over the sin of the people, the, the destruction, the ruin that's come upon them because of their sin. They are grieving over that. This is righteous people that begin to grieve over the situation of our nation, the situation of our country. They are grieving. They are mourning over it. 
And the mourning is made very graphic there because they are, grow, they are grieving over their own sin, which is part of it, but over the sins of the people. And what the sins of the people have done has brought ruin to the cities. Now, what has the sin of America done? It's devastating our, our nation. Devastating it. I mean, the sin of America is bringing ruin to America. I mean, we have gone insane. This country is going absolutely insane in political correctness. And the destruction is going to be so far-reaching that, that it is going to ruin generation after generation if the Lord tarries even more than we've ever seen before. The evil that I grew up in, in the hippie movement, is nothing compared to the evil that is unleashed in the schools and young people today. It's unbelievable the filth and the, and, and the, the sin that is running rampant and if this goes on, what is the next generation going to be? And what's the next generation going to be? And if there's any hope of change, if there's any hope, it has to come through the life of Christ in the church, through the power of Pentecost in the church, through the Spirit of God moving through His people with power that can meet those needs, that can touch people at the point of their pain and suffering, that can deal with the reality of their sin by pointing them to the cross. And so before we can rebuild the cities, which is verse 4, the church has to be healed. The church has to be dealt with. The church has to come to the place and really begin to thirst after Christ and say, God, I've had this stuff in me for so long. I've had this unbelief and all these fears and all this stuff in me for so long. God, it's time they get out. Because God wants to do a deliverance in the church that through the church he can bring deliverance to a perishing world. But how can we be used to see captives set free if we're all bound up? So God has to set the church free to become agents of that freedom, bringing it to a perishing world in the power of Pentecost. That God can do something powerful through us then. So he says to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. What we have to see is in, the, in this verse is a picture of, of ancient mourning. Okay, not as what we do today, and I'm not downplaying their mourning being greater than our mourning, but they had the cultural dynamics of that. So you have somebody dies, and you, know, you have this, this wife that loses her husband, and, and she'll be on her knees and take the dust of ashes and put it on her head, and, the, and her, her head will be all covered in ashes, and then the weeping, these, these streak marks down her face and down her clothes, and she'll put on sackcloth, or a man is mourning, he'll put on sackcloth, this rough type of, of, of clothing that is an expression of mourning, but it's not a time to wear nice clothes and to spell all nice and pretty. This is a time of, of mourning. And when we look at this, what is the mourning over in this setting? It is the mourning over the sin that has devastated Israel. And he says, I will do these things for you if you will grieve over my people, if you'll grieve over my, over my world that has gone astray, I will do these things for you. And so he says, I will take the ashes, and instead of ashes, I will give you a crown of beauty. Now implied with this is a cleansing. Because God's not going to go and put this crown upon a filthy person. He'll put the crown on somebody that's clean. And so it's, it's implied here that there's this washing, this terrifying that's going on, that's taking this person that has been in the agony of mourning and despair, that has the ashes and the marks of the tears flowing down the face and, you know, all the, the moaning and groaning that went on. 
And he picks that person up, cleanses the person, and puts a crown upon their head. And it's a crown of beauty. This beautiful crown, this beauty that comes upon the person. They are beautified because of the cleansing and because of the crown. Now, it's not a crown of kingship as if we're going to be something royal, but it is a crown of that place where, where we are in fellowship with God and He has bestowed this upon us. He's given us these crowns. We see that in Revelation that are e expressions of, of the rewards that we get. And so the ashes express deep grief. Like I said, there is implied the cleansing from ashes. The crown of beauty, really, if we move to the New Testament, is speaking of a Christ-like character, and that's what really beautifies us. That's what really beautifies us, is a Christ-like character. And so are there some ugly areas of your life? God wants to make it beautiful. He does. He wants to beautify you. But before he can beautify you, you have to first do the morning. If you won't do the mourning over that which is in your own life, then the beauty can't come. The Christ-like character can't come. There has to be the mourning over it. But yet on a broader basis, you look at, at family and the world and community that you know, people that are rushing to hell. If we're not going to weep in essence, then he's not going to give us that, that crown of gladness, the, the joy that comes out of the place of going with Jesus to the garden to weep with him over a perishing world. In the story of Esther, without going through the whole thing, is you have a plot that went on to not just kill a Jew or some Jews, but to annihilate the Jews, to make them extinct, to kill every Jew within the Babylonian Empire. And so what happened? They began to pray. But let's look at this for a moment. In Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I'll just read this to you. When Mordecai, a godly Jew, learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. What is being spoken of here? This judgment was going to come upon the people. This, if I might put it, this wrath of hell to try and extinguish them. And when they understood the reality that was going on, what did they do? They went in the morning. They went into repentance. They went into crying out for the mercy of God to be made manifest to spare them. That's what, what was going on here. So the whole idea of ashes is this mourning that takes place. But what does, it that, what does God do when the deliverance comes, which it came? And guess where it came at the last moment, right? In chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Mar Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. Why'd that happen? Because they went to mourning first. They were crying out to God, spare your people. Do not make us an object of scorn. That's from Joel, if I remember correctly. 
He says, I'll give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So this is what God's going to do. Okay, these are the promises that he will give those who grieve. And so he says, I'll give you the oil of gladness instead of mourning. So when you are in mourning, you don't put on your perfumes, your ointments. You don't wear the nice clothes. You're in this agony, agonizing state. And God says, I'm going to take your mourning from you. <clears throat> I'm going to take the ashes from you. I'm going to give you a clean life now. I'm going to purify you and put this crown upon you. And I'm going to take that mourning away and replace it with the oil of gladness. And that oil is symbolic of the anointing that's there. The anointing of the Spirit of God brings joy. It brings gladness. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what He's there for. That's why He comes to live inside of believers. And that's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or at least part of it's about, that place of fellowship with God that He can fill us with great joy. Why? Because we went through the time of mourning. He's cleansed us. He's purified us. He put this crown upon us. We are His. We belong to Him. And then He will give us a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair, the garment with sackcloth, right? I'll tell you what, that's some pretty nasty stuff. It's like wearing a burlap bag, okay? If something's going to cause you mourning, that'll cause you mourning as well. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it can't be fun, but yet that's what the culture did. You know, you're in mourning, you wear this rough clothing. There was nothing nice. You were not to be in a time of anything of pleasure. You, rough, you ate rough and coarse food and, and so on, and now God is turning this all around. You went through the time of mourning. You went through the time of repentance. You have dealt with the issue. Now you are, are mourning for a perishing world, for your own country that's rushing to hell, for your own family members. And because the mourning is true and real, and because you have given yourself to it, I am coming to relieve you, to give you joy and gladness and garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So, I don't want you to raise your hands, but how many of you have had despair in your life? You know what happens when despair is there? There's not a garment of praise. Right? It's the total opposite. What are you, what are you looking at when you're in despair? Yourself. That's it. That's all you see is yourself. Your problems. Woe is me. Life's so hard. Why is everything going wrong? God, I'm just trying to serve you. Why is all this bad stuff happening to me? And all the questions that comes out. But he says, if you'll mourn, if you'll take the right path, I will replace that self-absorption, that despair that comes in your life with a garment of praise where you are filled with such joy that all you can do is be thankful to this God. And it just rolls out of you, like Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, like a river. Just pouring out of this, this gratitude, this thankfulness because of what God has done. You see, that's what God wants to do in our lives. That's what he wants to do in the church. That's what he wants to do through these meetings. To begin to deliver those that have been in despair and been in mourning and had the heaviness of life and all those things to begin to break those chains and set people free so there can be joy in serving God. And you know, when we are in joy in serving God, it's a lot easier to serve God and it's a lot easier to go out and do something for Him. If life is just this thing where it's just terrible and miserable and so hard, you don't want to do anything. You're just trying to survive. Keep your head above water when you feel like you're in the midst of a hurricane storm. And then the final thing he says in that verse is, is they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planning of the Lord for the display of his splendor. You know, when you look at the history of Israel, you see this cycle, and I forget what psalm it is. One of the psalms bring this out again and, a, uh, again, and again. 
And it's where the children of Israel walk with God. They walk with God and then they're blessed. And as they're blessed, they begin to slowly start moving away because they start trusting in their riches. As they do that, they're, they're, they come to a backslidden state because of their prosperity. Okay, And then what happens? They're in a place of bondage again because God says, okay, I'm going to oppress you now. I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to bless you in that condition. So they're in that, that oppression until finally they call out again. And the cycle goes on and on and on. You know what God's saying here? That I don't want you to be in that cycle. I don't want you to be in this vicious cycle. You're doing well one day and the next day you're not. The next day you're doing great and the next day you're not. That's not God's plan. He wants you to become an oak of righteousness for the display of his splendor. You don't see oaks bending under the wind. They are strong against the storm. They stand against it. Their roots are deep. They're a hardwood. They have the ability to withstand. They are there. They are consistent. They are faithful. You see, that's what God's wanting to do. He's wanting to deliver us from the flippancy that can be there, the half-heartedness, from the up and down type of thing that's in our life, that we begin to have a faith that is stable and consistent, and people start looking at it and see something so different. Why were you so flaky before, and what's happened now? Right? I mean, I'll tell you what, over my years of being a Christian, over, you know, over 40 years of ministry, I have known some flaky Christians. Right? Just, I mean... Just they don't know what it is to walk with God. They don't know what it is to be stable. They don't know what it is to be faithful. You know, they're in and out. You know, they can talk about all that God is showing them, and the next thing you're back in their sin. You know, I'm going, what's wrong with that picture? What does God want to do? He wants to bring that stability to us, that strength to us, that fortitude where we can stand, not in our own strength, but we've learned how to now stand in the strength of God. And so this is the renewal we need. This is what these meetings are about, that God can do some miracles in lives, that God can bring some refreshing in lives, that he can bring some deliverance, that he can break some chains that have been in your life for a long time. And you need to be coming in expectation, believing, that you come believing that God wants to meet you at that point of need. And that you also come for something else. We're going to have a time on Sunday night praying for people for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you need to come believing. If you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you come believing that God wants to fill you. If you've received it, you come believing that he wants to give you a fresh infilling because God wants to meet, meet his people. There are times that he just wants us to enjoy him, just love being with him. And that's what I think these uh, four services are all about, a time to enjoy him, to enjoy the worship, enjoy the time with each other, to enjoy the word of God, to enjoy the altar time. And so come an expectation. Now here's what we're going to do as we go into a time of prayer. We are going to pray about the renewal of the church, of this church of the breaking of chains and bondages and other things, breaking those things in this church. We're going to pray about the supernatural, about God bringing miracles, doing miracles, because God's a miracle-working God. But like I did last year, for those of you that were here, and remember, I was very point-blank. I said, okay, we're going to pray about one thing, only one thing. And I will direct as we pray because I want our prayers to be focused. I want our prayers to be specifically at, a, at, a, at an issue. We'll pray until it's time to go on to another thing and then I'll bring direction there as well. 
I don't want you wandering around praying for everything else. You can do that at home, okay? This is a time to be focused. This is a time to go to war. This is a time to battle and fight through. I pastored a, Rom a Romanian church, and um, they have this uh, wonderful thing that they did, and I found out they do it in a Chechen church as well. But uh, when they have times of prayer, what they do is they'll have a deacon come up, and he will give some direction to the congregation to pray. And then you'll just watch it. It just happens. Everyone gets on their knees. And then the roar begins. I mean, roar. As they are praying, they aren't being proud and afraid to pray because somebody's next to them because that person is praying and not listening to you. So why are you worried about that person listening to you when they're not even listening to you? Right? I and mean, we get so consumed and we don't do what we should do because we're so afraid of what people would say. But it is absolutely wonderful where you'll have, you know, 15 minutes of this roar as they're praying. Of course, I don't know what any of them are saying because they're all, to me, speaking in tongues. But, uh, you know, because I don't know uh, Romanian. But, I mean, it was still the presence of God. The presence of God was wonderful. And you know what? I was thinking about this Sunday, and you know what started happening? You were doing that. You were doing it. So, you know what that means? I know you know how to do it. All right? So now, we're in a different setting, okay? It's not in the, in, in the height of the presence of God, and it's just easy to do it. But now, we are going to make the choice to pray and to seek God and to ask him. And here's what I want to do, okay? We're going to go in time. I'm going to have you all stand in a moment. We're all going to just begin to pray out loud about this one subject, one subject, okay? I don't want you praying about anything else. I just want this one subject brought before God. And then as it starts dying down, I want two people to lead in prayer, okay? Okay?